much that is just on marriage, but it's on marriages that are made in heaven. And so in the bulletin, you'll find the text, the title, the sermon outline. I consider the sermon outline very important so you can follow what I'm saying in an organized fashion. My text is Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. Now, I think we'd agree that most Christians are called to the state of marriage. They're called to marry. Some, however, are given the gift of singleness. And for those, God has a special plan for you. But this morning, we're focusing on the married state. Now, this is a foundational sermon, not intended to replace a seminar or a lengthy Bible study on marriage. It simply introduces God's initial thoughts on the family unit. And as I've seen on television before, news items before movies, it's a spoiler, spoiler alert, which means that what I'm about to say is not always politically correct. I preach the word. Amen. So this morning, pray with me as I seek God's approval. Psalm 1914. Dear Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You know, a little girl had learned the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and she was very excited about it. She went home and she told her mother the story, and when she got down to the place where Prince is kissing Snow White and awakening her from her sleep, the little girl said, Mother, do you know what happened then? Well, the mother, knowing the story and how it's supposed to end, she said, well, they lived happily ever after. And the little girl said, oh, no, they got married. <laughs> First, have I got a magic trick for you? Well, you can marry and you can live happily ever after if you will make sure that yours is a marriage made in heaven. As we can see, we don't go very far into the first book of the Bible when you come up with the first marriage in history. There never has been, there never will be another marriage quite like it. And first of all, there were no in-laws to put up with. <laughs> Eve could never run home to mama if things got bad around the house. Adam never had to listen to Eve say to him, you're not the only man I could have married. Eve never had to listen to Adam say, why can't you cook like my mama used to? <laughs> you know, I heard one husband complaining to his wife, and he said, why can't you cook biscuits like my mama did? And she said, why don't you bring home the dough like my daddy did? <laughs> From the very beginning, Adam and Eve had a marriage literally made in heaven. And it's not coincidental that this institution of marriage and the first home are portrayed at the very beginning of the Bible. Now, in 1888, the Supreme Court of the United States rendered this opinion, and it stated about marriage, it is an institution, the maintenance of which, in its purity, the public is deeply interested, for it is the foundation of the family and of society, without which there would be neither civilization nor progress. And the Supreme Court got something right. God intended for the home, not the state, not the school, 
not even the church, upon which civilization was to be founded. You know, it is the foundation upon which society is founded, and it is the fabric out of which harmony is to be produced, marriage. And so the first marriage that we see here in Scripture is a picture of and is prescription for a marriage made in heaven. And someone has wisely observed that there are only two causes of unhappy marriages, men and women. If you husbands and wives will listen carefully, you will learn how to enjoy your mate rather than endure your marriage. And so in your outline, first notice the company God desired for Adam. See, up until now, God had created everything, and he called everything, it's good and very good. But now for the first time, he looks at what he has done, and he says in verse 18, it is not good. Now, what God said was not good was not good because he saw in it a blot, a blemish, a flaw, or a failure. The problem was not that God's creation was imperfect, but rather that it was incomplete. And so how did God see Adam's dilemma? Now, what was it about God's creation that was not good? Well, the problem was that man was alone. And verse 18 more completely states, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Now, technically, man was not alone because he was surrounded by the ears, by the birds in the air, by the beasts in the fields, by the fish in the ocean, but there was only one man. And God never intended for man to be alone. No man is an island, nor was he ever intended to be. You know, Proverbs 18, one tells us, a man who isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he rages against all wise judgment. Now, we men especially, sometimes ridicule women who do not find a mate. Or perhaps they choose not to accept one, and we deem them as old maids or unclaimed blessings. They're seen as social misfits in a world of married people. But the fact of the matter, it is not single women who are out of step with society. It is single men who may be out of step with society. Listen to this. Men commit over 90% of major crimes of violence, almost 100% of the rapes, 95% of the burglaries. They comprise 94% of our drunken drivers, 70% of suicides, 91% of offenders against family and children. But more specifically, the chief perpetrators are single men. Single men comprise between 80 and 90% of most of the categories of social pathology. And the average they make less money than other segments of society, and that includes less money than single women or working women. And as the insurance companies' actuaries will tell you, single men are less responsible about their bills, about their driving, and other personal conduct. And so together with the disintegration of the family, single men constitute our leading social problem. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong for a man to be single. And sometimes God gifts a man to be single. But normally, it's God's will for a man to be with a woman and a woman to be with a man. And God knew all of this. 
See, God created man with two voids that could only be filled by their, by their heavenly father and by an earthly female. See, God knew what Adam needed, and what he needed was, verse 18, he needed a helper comparable to himself. I want you to understand, first of all, that women are not an afterthought in the mind of God. She was not a footnote at the bottom of the creation page. Somebody said that God created man. When he saw man, he took a good look at him and said, I believe I can do better than that. (laughs) And he created women. But the truth is that Eve was in the heart of God long before she was in the hands of Adam. Back in Genesis 1.27, which reminds us, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. At some point, Adam did not realize that he was alone because you can't miss what you've never had. It never bothered Adam that he didn't have a Saturday night date because no one had ever had a Saturday night date. So how does God go about stimulating Adam's desire? Verses 19 to 20 states, Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he could call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And so Adam gave names to all of the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now I'm sure that... Adam had a phenomenal time, fascinating time, doing exactly that. But as he does this, he's beginning to notice that there's a Mr. Horse and a Mrs. Horse. There's a Mr. Dog and a Mrs. Dog. A Mr. Robin and a Mrs. Robin. And all of a sudden, there is a gnawing in his stomach and a twang in his heart. Because he realizes that even though there is a Mr. Adam, there is no Mrs. Adam. All of the animals have a mate, but he doesn't. For the first time, Adam experiences loneliness, not because he was alone, but because he was incomplete. Something or someone was missing. That someone was the first woman. So let's look at the companion that God delivered to Adam. The stage is set. Adam is now two-thirds married. God wants him married. He wants to be married. And now we need a woman to complete this triumphant triangle. The perfect piece to the puzzle is none other than the first woman. And what was God's purpose for the woman? Woman was created to fulfill a specific function in relation to the man. First of all, she was to provide companionship. Man was not made to be alone. He needed someone like him who can talk to him, walk with him, and share the burdens and the blessings of life. You know, by the very way that we are made, the greatest companion we could ever find is a woman. And ladies, the greatest companion you will ever find is a man. But the woman was also created for for cooperation. She is to be a helper. Men don't like to admit it, but we need help. We need help if we are going to be all that God has created us to be, and a woman is the only person in the world who can help a man be all that he can be. 
Now let me say to the wives that there is no middle ground in your relationship to your husband. You're either a help or you're a hindrance. But I also want to say to men that cooperation is a two-way street. Not only is the wife to help the husband and cooperate with him, but the husband is to help the wife and cooperate with her. Marriages often break down at this point because there is no helping or no cooperation. One wife was talking to her husband and she said, Did you know that they've named a street after you? He said, Really? What was it? She said, One way. (laughs) But the woman was also created for completion. God said she was to be a helper comparable to the man. The word comparable there means suitable. That is, a woman was intended to be a perfect fit to the man, and a good woman is. Why do you think husbands often call their wives the better half? What was God's preparation of the woman? Verses 21 to 24 states, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. So God performs the first surgery in history. And he begins by putting Adam to sleep. Now we're not told specifically how he put Adam to sleep. One Sunday school teacher's class, she asked the kids, how did God put Adam to sleep? And one little boy raised his hand and he said, by preaching a long sermon. (laughs) Well, regardless of how God did it, he put Adam to sleep, and he takes one of Adam's ribs and forms the first woman. Now, Bible scholars for centuries have debated the question, why did God choose the rib? Well, here's one explanation. When God created man, he made him out of the dust of the ground. When he created woman, he took her from the man. He did not take her from his head so that she would be lording over him. She did not take it from his feet that he might trample over her. But he took her from his side close to his heart in order that she might be his companion and that he might love and care for her. The point is that women or the woman was especially made and custom built for the man. Third, how does God, how is the presentation of the woman by God? Verse 22, and he brought her to the man. Here we have the first wedding in human history. And Eve becomes the only bride given away by God himself. And this leads us, leads us to some great principles that all potential mates better remember. Listen. The only person you ought to marry is the person God brings to you. Listen, God never brings a non-Christian to marry a Christian. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with fallenness, and what communion has light with darkness? And remember, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is saved. Matthew 7.21 If you are a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, I will guarantee you you're going to have big trouble with your father-in-law. 
And listen, God also never brings to you a person who is willing to share, suggest, or facilitate sin with you. Never marry a person who is willing to live with you outside of marriage, even if there is a promise, even a date set to marry. See, such a plan defies God and will reap conflicts to come, not to mention the witness that you're providing for your unsaved relatives. Now notice carefully that God made the woman from the man for the man. She was then given to the man and named by the man. Now that's not coincidental. It's providential because it illustrates the proper relationship between a man and the woman. The man is to be in authority and the woman is to be in subordination. Now that's not a popular thing to say, but it's true nonetheless. Naming, the act of naming in the scriptures is an expression of authority. It was God who named man and the stars. It was the man who named the animals because he is over them. It is man who named the woman because he is over her. Incidentally, this is one reason why a wife is to take the husband's surname after she's married. It's cultural, but it reflected God's order. But in response to the feminist movement, some women keep their maiden names after marriage, and this is in opposition to God's plan. The world continues its rebellion and its journey towards Satan and his kingdom. They want to make a point, and it's not a godly one. Now, the word man literally means to be in power. And the word woman literally means to be soft. God intended from the very beginning that the authority and the leadership of this relationship was to reside in the male. How much more critical is it that the husband be a strong Christian? Now you may think that I'm reading from the Old Testament, but I'm actually getting all of this from the New Testament. Listen carefully to these verses. 1 Corinthians 11.3, also verses 8-9. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was God, man created for the woman, but woman for the man. I'm sorry to say that the feminists and humanists can scream bloody murder. But this is God's ordained order for the home, and it's not been changed, and it will never change. Third, let's look at the commitment that God demanded from Adam. Now that we know that marriage is ordained by God, that it is a divine institution, we are now given God's prescription for a healthy marriage. And that prescription may be summarized as follows. Marriage is more than finding the right person. It is being the right person. I want to share with you four ingredients of a marriage made in heaven. First ingredient, a supreme connection. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Before there can be a union of husband and wife, there must be first a disunion 
of a child from a parent. The parent-child relationship is intended to be temporary. The husband-wife relationship is meant to be permanent. No other relationship, neither the parent-child nor the child-parent, is to supersede the husband-wife relationship. I believe the greatest outlaws are in-laws who interfere with their children's marriage. And I want to give this word of advice to young couples who are about to marry or who have just gotten married. You had better cut mama's apron strings and daddy's purse strings. And I want to say to the mamas and the daddies, it is just as important to be a good in-law as it is to be a good parent. And young ladies, don't ever run home to mama at the first sight, sign of a conflict. Running away from the problem never solves it, and running home to mama can actually aggravate it. And I want to say to every person who is married, you are no longer primarily a daughter or a son. You are primarily a husband and a wife, and that relationship deserves your preeminent loyalty. The second ingredient of a marriage made in heaven is a steadfast commitment. Verse 24 states, and be joined to his wife. Now, the word join there literally means to, to weld or to glue. And it is the picture of two pieces of metal being welded together or, or two pieces of wood being glued together. When two people, a man and a woman, come together for the purpose of marriage, God intends for them to be welded together permanently. God's law is one man, one woman for one life. By the way, God's law doesn't just apply to Christians. God's law applies to the whole world, non-believers as well. They just don't want to obey. You see, when a man and a woman first get married, they bring a lot of rough edges to that marriage. And before Marriage, they've never been close enough to each other to to begin to grind against one another and to smooth off those rough areas of their life. And after they get married, soon enough, they begin to grind on each other, and it hurts. But be patient. God is allowing the coarseness of your lives to be worn down and smoothed so that you can better stick together and have a successful marriage. Let me give you a real good example. During the Second World War, two graduate students in physics heard their professor say that someday a method would be devised for polishing glass that would replace steel as the flattest surface known to man. Well, these two young physicists decided they would try to prove this professor's theory, and after several years, they produced such a flat surface that it could be measured within two millionths of an inch. And when this professor visited their plant, one of the students said to him, Do you see these two squares of glass? They've been put through this new process, and I want to show you something. Then he simply placed the two pieces together, handed them to the professor and said, now take them apart. He pulled, he pushed, he twisted, he turned, and he exerted all of the strength he could muster, but he could not budge them. The young physicist explained, these two surfaces were held together 
by a certain number of points of contact. But ordinarily, they are so few that they can easily come apart. The points that are almost the, the points on these two pieces of glass, however, have been ground down till they are almost completely flat surfaces. And now they are being held together by so many points of contact that it is almost impossible to take them apart. If you will let God join you together from the very beginning and use the two of you to rub down the rough edges of your life, nothing will be able to tear you apart. I also want to make it plain. From the very beginning, God never intended for divorce to be an option in marriage. No matter what anybody else tells you. God tells us in three words what he thinks about divorce. In Malachi 2.16, he says, I hate divorce. By the way, you would be amazed how so few qualify for a so-called biblical divorce based on adultery. Forgiveness and repentance comes into play. Third ingredient, a sexual communion. And they became one flesh. Now notice carefully the order here. First you leave, then you cleave. First you leave your parents, then you get married, then you become one flesh. Now, first of all, the rules eliminate premarital sex. And according to the United States Census Bureau, the number of unmarried couples living together has quadrupled since 1970. And many couples living together in this country are not married, but the word of God is plain. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. It violates the context of sex, and it desecrates the beauty of sex. And of course, that rules out extramarital sex as well. And it was estimated that 60% of married men and 40% of married women have or have had extramarital affairs. In other words, they cheat on their mates at least once in a marriage relationship. And so when it comes to marriage, two is company and three is a crowd. Nothing can hold a marriage together like sexual fidelity. Nothing can tear it apart like sexual infidelity. And that is God's plan for all men and women. Don't forget those rules also apply to the unbelievers. Same results. Fourth ingredient of marriage made in heaven is a shameless communication. Verse 25 states, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There is to be an intimacy between a husband and a wife that is not found in any other relationship. What is so sad are recent surveys that show that five of the ten marriages, just 50%, that do hold together, no more than 20% of these marriages achieve what might be called intimacy in the relationship. People staying together, but no intimacy. But a marriage is a relationship and where there ought to be no secrets and no shame, where there is to be total acceptance, complete loyalty, and unconditional love. 
You see, a husband and wife should not only be lovers, they should be best friends. And if you will achieve and work on this kind of intimacy in your marriage with all the other qualities that I've mentioned this morning, you can bring heaven right into your home. And so to end on the very first thought from the beginning of my sermon, you can marry and you can live happily ever after if you will make sure that yours is a marriage made in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let us go out, especially if you're married, and be an example to people in your body and to the world. We go out and we praise God. We praise Him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For we glorify the one true God. Amen? Amen.